Mr. Justice Holmes delivered the opinion of the court. This is an indictment in three counts. The first charges a conspiracy to violate the Espionage Act of June 15, 1917, by causing and attempting to cause insubordination in the military and naval forces of the United States, and to obstruct the recruiting and enlistment service of the United States, when the United States was at war with the German Empire, to wit, that the defendants willfully conspired to have printed and circulated to men who had been called and accepted for military service under the Act, a document set forth and alleged to be calculated to cause such insubordination and obstruction. The Count alleges overt acts in pursuance of the conspiracy, ending in the distribution of the document set forth. The second count alleges a conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States, to wit, to use the mails for the transmission of matter declared to be non-mailable by Title 12 of the Act, to wit, the above-mentioned document with an averment of the same overt acts. The third count charges an unlawful use of the mails for the transmission of the same matter and otherwise as above. The defendants were found guilty on all counts. They set up the First Amendment to the Constitution, forbidding Congress to make any law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, and bringing the case here on that ground, have argued some other points also of which we must dispose. It is argued that the evidence, if admissible, was not sufficient to prove that the defendant Shank was concerned in sending the documents. According to the testimony, Schenck said he was general secretary of the Socialist Party and had charge of the Socialist headquarters from which the documents were sent. He identified a book found there as the minutes of the executive committee of the party. The book showed a resolution of August 13, 1917, that 15,000 leaflets should be printed on the other side of one of them in use to be mailed to men who had passed exemption boards and for distribution. Shank personally attended to the printing. On August 20th, the General Secretary's report said, quote, obtained new leaflets from printer and started work addressing envelopes, unquote. And there was a resolve that Comrade Shank be allowed $125 for sending leaflets through the mail. He said that he had about 15 or 16,000 printed. There were files of the circular in question in the inner office, which he said were printed on the other side of the one-sided circular, and were there for distribution. Other copies were proved to have been sent through the mails to drafted men. Without going into confirmatory details that were proved, no reasonable man could doubt that the defendant Shank was largely instrumental in sending the circulars about. As to the defendant Bear, there was evidence that she was a member of the executive board and that the minutes of its transactions were hers. The argument as to the sufficiency of the evidence that the defendants conspired to send the documents only impairs the seriousness of the real defense. It is objected that the documentary evidence was not admissible because obtained upon a search warrant valid so far as appears. The contrary is established. 
The search warrant did not issue against the defendant, but against the socialist headquarters at 1326 Arch Street. And it would seem that the documents technically were not even in the defendant's possession. Notwithstanding some protest and argument, the notion that evidence even directly proceeding from the defendant in a criminal proceeding is excluded in all cases by the Fifth Amendment is plainly unsound. The document in question, upon its first printed side, recited the first section of the Thirteenth Amendment, said that the idea embodied in it was violated by the conscription act, and that a conscript is little better than a convict. In impassioned language, it intimated that conscription was despotism in its worst form, and a monstrous wrong against humanity in the interest of Wall Street's chosen few. It said, do not submit to intimidation, but in form, at least, confined itself to peaceful measures such as a petition for the repeal of the act. The other and later printed side of the sheet was headed, Assert Your Rights. It stated reasons for alleging that anyone violated the Constitution when he refused to recognize your right to assert your opposition to the draft, and went on, quote, If you do not assert and support your rights, you are helping to deny or disparage rights, which it is the solemn duty of all citizens and residents of the United States to retain. It described the arguments on the other side as coming from cunning politicians and a mercenary capitalist press, and even silent consent to the conscription law was helping to support an infamous conspiracy. It denied the power to send our citizens away to foreign shores to shoot up the people of other lands, and added that words could not express the condemnation such cold-blooded ruthlessness deserves. Winding up, you must do your share to maintain, support, and uphold the rights of the people of this country. Of course, the document would not have been sent unless it had been intended to have some effect, and we do not see what effect it could be expected to have upon persons subject to the draft except to influence them to obstruct the carrying of it out. The defendants do not deny that the jury might find against them on this point. But it is said, suppose that that was the tendency of this circular, it is protected by the First Amendment to the Constitution. Two of the strongest expressions are said to be quoted respectively from well-known public men. It well may be that the prohibition of laws abridging the freedom of speech is not confined to previous restraints, although to prevent them may have been the main purpose, as intimated in Patterson v. Colorado. We admit that, in many places and in ordinary times, the defendants, in saying all that was said in the circular, would have been within their constitutional rights. But the character of every act depends upon the circumstances in which it is done. 
The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. It does not even protect a man from an injunction against uttering words that may have all the effect of force. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. It is a question of proximity and degree. When a nation is at war, many things that might be said in time of peace are such a hindrance to its effort that their utterance will not be endured so long as men fight, and that no court could regard them as protected by any constitutional right. It seems to be admitted that if an actual obstruction of the recruiting service were proved, liability for words that produce that effect might be enforced. The statute of 1917 in Section 4 punishes conspiracies to obstruct as well as actual obstruction. If the act, speaking or circulating a paper, its tendency and the intent with which it is done are the same, we perceive no ground for saying that success alone warrants making the act a crime. Indeed, that case might be said to dispose of the present contention if the precedent covers all media concludendi. But as the right to free speech was not referred to specially, we have thought fit to add a few words. It was not argued that a conspiracy to obstruct the draft was not within the words of the Act of 1917. The words are, quote, obstruct the recruiting or enlistment service, unquote. And it might be suggested that they refer only to making it hard to get volunteers. Recruiting heretofore, usually having been accomplished by getting volunteers, the word is apt to call up that method only in our minds. But recruiting is gaining fresh supplies for the forces, as well by draft as otherwise. It is put as an alternative to enlistment or voluntary enrollment in this act. The fact that the Act of 1917 was enlarged by the amending Act of May 16, 1918, of course, does not affect the present indictment, and would not even if the former Act had been repealed. Judgments Affirmed We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.